turn in our Bibles to the book of Micah this morning, and uh, we'll give you a moment or two to find that. Um, I could almost swear that when we're sleeping, the minor prophets are moving around in our Bible. And um, if you're with us today and without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles and they'll put a Bible in your hand marked to the passage we'll be studying uh, this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, today. A message uh, on my heart for uh, the new year. Uh, A single verse, but we'll establish the context of it uh, a little bit as well. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. He's crying out to his people. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Of my people, O my people, Remember now what Balak the king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. And with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come to before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are to be able to worship you. We are glad that your people, both Old Testament and New Testament, were singing people. You have given us so many causes for praise and worship. We would burst if we weren't able to express it to you. And so, Lord, we have lifted up our prayers and our worship and thanksgiving to you. You have been the one that has heard it and received it. And now we pray as things are reversed as we turn to your word. And now would you speak to us and we will be eager to hear it. And to more than hear it, receive it into our lives. We pray that you would do this as a wonderful, gracious work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to make a a principal focus to be verse 8 this morning, but I want to establish the context for it uh, before we uh, get there. The prophet Micah, he prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah at a time in Israel's history when the kingdom was divided. There was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom uh, of Judah. 
He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah from about 740 uh, BC to about 687 BC. He prophesied for an astonishing period of uh, uh, 50 to 60 years. There are many prophets or some prophets in the Old Testament whose uh, prophetic ministry was fairly brief, um, sometimes just as short as a couple of weeks, and then uh, they were done in terms of uh, their prophecies that are listed for us in the Scriptures. He was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea, who prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time, also a contemporary of Isaiah, who uh, with Micah prophesied to the southern kingdom uh, of, of Judah. And with Isaiah, he prophesied to Judah of the coming a destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of the Assyrians. But he not only prophesied of their destruction and the coming judgment upon Judah itself by the hands of the Babylonians, but even more importantly, he told them why the northern kingdom and southern kingdom uh, were targets for God's uh, judgment, why they would, were ripe for God's judgment. At the time of Micah's prophecies, despite uh, the southern kingdom of Judah having godly kings at, t uh, at times, and only the southern kingdom of Judah did, the northern kingdom of Israel never had one good king, never one godly uh, king. But despite even some of the good kings that reigned uh, in the southern kingdom of Judah, sometimes for lengthy periods of time, uh, lasting decades, uh, Israel and Judah morally and spiritually were a mess at this time. Uh, the nations were marked by uh, political unrest and social decay. Examples of this uh, Micah brings out uh, throughout his, his book. Astonishingly and really an appalling affront to God, each of the capital cities of the two nations, uh, Samaria and Jerusalem, were no longer centers for the worship of the God of the Bible, the true and the living God, but they had become centers for idolatry in the ancient world. The rich and the powerful used their wealth and position not to assist the poor and the vulnerable and the powerless in society, but to further oppress them by using their power, using their wealth to take what little the poor had in terms of their fields and their homes. People meant nothing. Money meant everything. Decisions were not made with any thought toward how it would impact people. The decisions were made solely on the basis of how much money could be made. And the gap between the haves and the have-nots and the means by which that gap was achieved uh, had become uh, obscene in the eyes of God. They threatened and attempted to silence the true prophets of God and sent uh, by God to rebuke the sinful practices uh, of the two kingdoms. They empowered false prophets within uh, the land. Anyone who declared that their sin was okay in the eyes of God, anyone associated with the book, with the Bible, uh, the God of the Bible were marginalized. And, uh, and a concerted effort was made to restrict their message to, uh, from him to his people while anything and everything else was not only given freedom to be expressed but was protected and handled with kid gloves. Their judges and government officials used their positions not to serve the people, 
not to bless the people, but only to amass further wealth to themselves and to enlarge their own uh, power. Lady Justice was not blind in that uh, day. Her judgments were not made independent of a person's wealth or their uh, appearance or station in life. The courts were utterly uh, corrupt. They openly favored the powerful uh, and the rich because they sought the bribes and the wealth of the powerful and the rich and the poor and the powerless had no hope at all of receiving justice. Violence filled the land as will be the case when God's laws are Uh, uh, ignored or when they go unenforced, lying and deceit had become the norm as opposed to honesty and integrity. And of course, we know nothing about this today in our nation, so we have to use our imaginations a little bit. And as a result, God's judgment loomed over the heads of not the pagan nations, but over the head of his own uh, people who declared themselves to be aligned with him. And so in verses 1 through 5, the Lord brought kind of a complaint against his people, the southern kingdom of Judah, in the form of a lawsuit. And so in chapter 6, in kind of a final attempt to wake them up to the dire condition that they found themselves in, not materially, but in the eyes of God. And those can be two entirely different things in human history and in life. So God calls them into court, so to speak, and he asks them to bring forth their charges against him, to bring forth some charge of unfaithfulness on his part, some failure on his part toward them as a reason for their abandonment of him for sin and for idolatry. And he called the mountains and the hills in verses 1 and 2 inanimate creation to become witnesses within this courtroom and uh, to bear witness as as in a court of law to the charges that would be brought against him uh, and and, uh, brought forth through his his messenger uh, Micah and the creation, the mountains and the hills, they had been uh, impartial witnesses to God's dealings honest witnesses to God's dealings with Israel from the very beginning. And then in verses 3 through 5, he called upon the children of Israel to testify against him for some failure on his part, some wrongdoing uh, on his part uh, toward them in his, their relationship with him. And in verse 3, he invited Israel to lay out its case against him, to declare if at any time he'd been less than merciful to them, less than good to them, less than unfailingly faithful uh, to them, and to declare uh, and, uh, if he had failed them at any time. And was the question in that courtroom as he posed to them, what was the truth in fact? Was the truth that he had deserted them or that they had deserted him? And he's willing to be confronted. I mean, it's a beautiful vulnerability that's in these verses. He's willing to be confronted with the truth of his failure to keep his good promises to them if indeed he had done it and to be publicly confronted and to be publicly uh, rebuked. And the response is an interesting one. The response was silence. 
They had nothing to say, nothing to offer, no accusation to be made against him. Of course, that's always going to be the case in the life of any child of God who attempts to find some wrongdoing or some failure on God's part concerning his promises as an excuse for uh, living a life of sin or living a life of idolatry or living in a backslidden state morally and spiritually. How long the silence went on, we don't know. We only know that God broke the silence because only God could break the silence to the questions that he posed uh, to them in an accusation against him. And he did so by reciting his long history of grace and mercy toward them in verses 4 and 5. He referenced the Exodus when he had delivered the children of Israel from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. He had done that as a miracle. He had done that for them. And then in verse 4, he referenced the fact that in their wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years, that he had provided godly leadership to them in the form of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And then in verse 5, how Balak the king had hired Balaam the prophet to prophesy against and bring a curse upon the children uh, of Israel as they were making their way to the promised land and how God had frustrated Balak in filling Balaam's mouth and his heart with blessings for the children of Israel. And then he spoke of his goodness in bringing them into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. In verse 5, the words from Acacia Grove to Gilgal point to their successful entrance into the promised land. Acacia Grove was their final stop outside of the promised land before entering into Israel, and Gilgal was the first place that, that they set, uh, 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 came in and, and made their encampment. And the purpose of remembering all of these past events God gave them and us was in verse 5, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. That is, his complete innocence concerning any cause among them and within them for their abandonment of him. And then Micah in verse 6, on behalf of God, he then voiced what should have been the response of the children of Israel to the questions that had just been posed to them, uh, the, the silence that uh, they had met them with, and, and the questions that they should have posed as a confession of God's complete righteousness uh, in their lives, in His goodness, and that their idolatry and that their sin could not be blamed upon uh, God. The appropriate question that they should have asked of God was in verse 6, in essence, how can we hope now to approach God uh, once again in worshiping Him in the light of the greatness of our sin against Him and our guilt before Him? And then God anticipates the answer to that question, if they had, if they had asked that, that question of themselves, the question that answer that they would have come up to that, uh, related to that. And God knew uh, that they would have offered concerning the mess of their spiritual and moral and societal decline 
if they had the integrity to do it. They're sitting there in silence in the courtroom, uh, so to speak. Silence, the silence of just hoping all of this will be over as soon as it can. And if I don't say anything, you know, maybe it'll uh, happen quicker. And what they would have suggested as a means to atone for their sin in verses 6 and 7 is burnt offerings with, a, with calves a year old. A burnt offering was an offering of consecration. When a person offered that, the entire the burnt offering, the entire uh, animal sacrifice was burned on the fire completely, entirely. It represented the attitude of the worshiper toward God. I give you my life entirely. I hold nothing back from you. And, and, uh, and so to offer burnt offerings to God with calves a year old, in, in other words, the most valuable, where a year's worth of, of effort and food and monetary investment in that calf would be offered to God. Or maybe willing to up the ante here, maybe God looks at us and our sin is as is, is serious as what He declares it to be, and so maybe it would require thousands of lambs in order to atone for our condition before Him and to make this right, or 10,000 rivers of oil, maybe even their firstborn, which God absolutely forbade in His uh, Word, but was practiced in the ancient world and would one day be practiced in Israel and Judah in the depths of their spiritual depravity and departure from, uh, from God. And then God gave them in verse 8 the correct answer to the question of how to get right with him once again. And the correct answer was to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Because this was and it always is where the rubber meets the road in terms of our lives. All of those other sacrifices the burnt offerings, the rams, the oil, all of those things were being offered to God uh, in the temple, being offered to Him while all of this uh, moral and spiritual decline was going on. All of it was being offered to Him, and it was being offered to Him independent of justly mercy and hum humility before God. It was all being offered as just this mindless, meaningless, religious ritual which meant nothing to God at all. And at this point, it's important to make clear that in verse 8, God's not talking about salvation here. He's not saying that if we do these three things, then we can clean ourselves up enough to make ourselves acceptable to God or to be forgiven of, of, our, uh, of our sins. And there's many people who view the passage in defiance of the teaching of the entire Bible, but they'll hold that view related to verse 8. Micah's not talking to pagans. Micah's not talking to the Amorites or the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Hittites. Micah's addressing a people, the Jewish people, who were already in a covenant with God. They were already in a relationship with God. And perhaps he had even Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 in mind when he communicated these same things. 
And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. And so Micah's not writing here about how to be saved. He's writing about how one who is saved ought to live his or her life in a way that's consistent with the God that we worship and consistent with their relationship with God. Now, I want to shift gears at this point in applying this verse to our own lives. And certainly, verse 8 is intended to provide a very serious, very serious uh, whooping to anyone who is in the condition uh, of Judah uh, presently even today. And any Christian who's playing games with God in terms of the practice of sin or idolatry or whose relationship with God has become so frivolous that it is mindless and meaningless ritual this morning And to repent of that and to get on this new path that he describes in verse 8 going forward. But the passage also, and for my purposes this morning, it represents a tremendous encouragement in our lives. Because if it's the solution to having made a mess of our lives and incurring God's chastening, then it is also preventative. It supplies us with the instruction for how to avoid ever ending up in that kind of a place at all to begin with. And so it's as, a, as an encouragement that I want us to look at it today. And I think that by and large that's God's intent in making it a passage heading into the new year. Let's just stop for a moment and think about a new year. Think about 2024 and consider what yet awaits every single one of us in the year 2024. How many thousands and thousands of decisions will each of us make in this coming year? And every decision putting us on a path in life, a path that leads inevitably to a destination which is either good or bad. And to stop and think concerning all of those thousands of decisions that we will make to consider how many other people would be affected by those decisions, people who are trusting in us, dependent upon us making good decisions, whether it is a husband, a wife, whether it's children or other family or clients or congregants or employers or employees. And then to stop and think about how many, 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 many words each of us will speak in the coming year. And we will speak them either to the health or the harm of every person who hears us. And to stop and to think about how many people we will come into contact with in the coming year. And each and every one of them is going to be influenced by that contact and their exposure to us. And then to stop and think about how many people will come to a 
definitive conclusion about God, about the Bible, about Christianity, about Jesus Christ, by watching our lives, whether for good or, or whether for bad. And think about the potential a new year is for great joy and blessing, while at the same time representing the same potential to introduce great regret and sorrow, often lifelong sorrow and regret into our lives. And to be entrusted with a new year is a great gift, and it is a great privilege, and it is also a great responsibility. And thus, as we start a new year, the questions arise like, how can a person endeavor to handle a coming year for the privilege that it is, the gift that it is, and to do so with the responsibility that is required, and to do so not only in the face of the world, the flesh, and the devil, but to do so while living in a nation and in a world that is very much like the nation the prophet Micah lived in and he walked with God in, and to do so in the midst of a nation which, like Israel and Judah, is throwing away the enormous gift of a godly heritage and complete with all of the blessings that come with that heritage. And through the prophet Micah, God gives us the answer. And the answer is so simple. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with or before our God. And the world that we live in can appear so complicated, so thoroughly messed up and heading in the wrong direction. The problems appear to be so big, so systemic, so entrenched that we can come to believe that the solutions to the problems have to be equally complicated or in an individual person's life. We can look at our life and our problems can seem so complicated, they can seem so big, so systemic, so entrenched, that the solution to our problems have to be equally complicated. And then a person loses hope. I remember reading some, something years ago by Alexander McLaren that struck me. And he wrote, Sorrow needs simple words for its consolation. Sorrow needs simple words for its consolation. In other words, if someone is hospitalized or someone has lost a loved one to death or someone has been left brokenhearted, it isn't a time for a Bible study beginning in the book of Genesis and ending four hours later in the book of Revelation. Something simple and true is what's needed. And in the same way, simple words, something simple and true from God is needed for the child of God when facing a new year, complete with all of its potential for blessing and all of its equal potential for sorrow and regret, something easy to remember. It's important to remember that just because a problem or problems seem hopelessly complex 
it does not necessarily mean that the solutions to those problems are complicated as well. The first thing God tells us to do is to do justly. Well, how do we know what it is to do justly? Micah reveals that to us in the passage when he declares, And he that is God has shown you, O man, that is us, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. God has revealed what it is to do justly in his word. And so decision by decision in the coming year, conversation by conversation in the coming year, deed by deed in the coming year, asking myself, what does God's Word tell me to do here in this situation? And then doing exactly that. That is to do justly. And so often in life, when a problem or a decision comes before us, our first thought is not what is right, or what is just in this situation. Oftentimes our first thought is, what will be the easiest thing here? Or what will get me out of this fix or this situation the quickest? Or what will make me the most money? Or what will require the least of me? Or if I do this, then so-and-so is going to be mad at me, and my thinking gets complicated in that way. Or if I do this, then so-and-so will be disappointed in me. And our thinking about this endless series of thousands of things that we will face thousands of times in the coming year are met continually by these kinds of things is our first response. And God says the thing to do is to meet them with a first response of what would be to do justly in this situation. Or in these kind of things that we face in life, the decisions and choices that we have to make, we can become uh, practical atheists. We buy into situational ethics, the idea that there are no universal rights and wrongs, that rights and wrongs are determined by the situation. So we become like the children of Israel in Micah's time. We convince ourselves that life is not as simple as the Bible makes it. And sometimes a police officer or a businessman or a soldier or an accountant or a parent needs to cut a corner. There's one woman I counseled concerning a situation in her life years ago and declared what the Bible instructed her to do in the light of that circumstance is she could hardly contain herself. She could hardly contain the frustration that she felt. And she shouted at me and she said, that's the Bible, this is real life. And sometimes we uh, handle these things that way. But Micah instructs us to ever and always stop Consider what the Bible tells us to do, and then to do that. And who knows what blessing, obedience to that alone will bring into our lives in this coming year, and just as importantly, the sorrow and the regret it will protect us from. We will face innumerable situations this year. They will appear so hopelessly complicated 
or will face a hard decision that needs to be made where if we made the consequences of our decisions our starting point, we'll find ourselves all tied up in knots as opposed to just stopping and asking ourselves, what's the right thing to do here? And then to do that, and then moving from that firm foundation of doing justly to then address the complexities that come up with the decisions we make in life. Second, God tells us to love mercy. That is, in any situation or relationship in our life, when in doubt as to what to do, to extend mercy. In other words, if we're going to err in life concerning situations we will face this year, it is always best to err on the side of grace. Personally, I can't speak for you at all, but personally, I have rarely regretted extending grace to others in life. But I have often regretted when I haven't done that, when I have responded with harshness and severity, sometimes uh, undue harshness and severity. And usually, not always, but usually... It is responding to others in grace that holds up over the long haul, that finds a good place in our memories when we look back on that situation and how we handled that situation or we handled that person uh, that leads to to decisions and words that we don't live to regret. They come so often birthed out of grace and mercy And it results in a comparatively peaceful life because it sits right. And uh, it sits right because it uh, is right. Because most often it's to be like God in the situation or in the relationship. He's very gracious and he's very merciful. This also helps us to know what to do in situations that the Bible doesn't address specifically. There's no chapter and verse that addresses this decision I need to make or what I need to do in this relationship. And so again, when in doubt, extend mercy. And as Jesus instructed us in the same kind of guiding rule, what's called the golden rule in his Sermon on the Mount, he said to us in these kind of situations, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, you also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You say, what will grace and mercy look like in this situation? It will look like what I would want someone to do for me and to me if the roles were reversed. And this year to choose to extend grace and mercy toward others and all of their imperfections in the same way that we will need that same grace and mercy from them in all of ours. And third and finally, to walk humbly with or humbly before our God. In other words, to live our lives before God with a spirit of humility and to engage other people with a spirit of humility, a spirit of modesty in, in terms of 
how we present ourselves as opposed to what? As opposed to uh, uh, doing so with selfishness or with pride or with arrogance or conceit or self-importance or cockiness or self-promoting. And instead, as the Bible teaches, to esteem others better than ourselves, viewing and treating uh, other people as human beings who are every bit as much as loved by God as, as we are. And then to have as a saying in our hearts, not something that we know in our heads, but something that we know in our spirit and in our core and believe it about ourselves. And that is to live in this coming year with a deep, holy conviction and understanding that but for the grace of God, there go I. And in taking up Jesus on his invitation to follow him in all of this, when he wrote in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Humility always sits right in the moment, and it sits right over the long haul. And this morning I have taught and I have developed the passage from verse 1 all the way through verse 8, developed the context, um, and I do that this morning in order that we might be able to realize that that the application of verse 8 here is uh, safe for us to embrace, wise for us to make a part of, of our lives. But the one kind of thing I, I kind of had second thoughts about in terms of developing uh, the passage is that I didn't want to develop the passage and in any way complicate the simplicity of verse 8 and what it communicates to us for the coming year. To simply ask in and of every situation in life, what is the right thing to do here? And then to do that. What would be the merciful and gracious thing to do here? And then to do that. What response would express humility in this situation on my part in the eyes of God and then doing that? And then as we do so, we will live our lives without regret, both before God and before man and in our own heart. And that, of course, is priceless. So each of us, we look at a new year coming ahead for us, each of us desires it will be a year of blessing. We desire that God would pour His blessings out upon us materially and spiritually in terms of peace, that we'd be able to live this next year in a bold faith and with an optimism that only can mark God's people in this world and to head into a new year uh, in this way and as we run our decisions and our actions and our words through this just three simple three-part grid, it goes a very long way toward giving God free reign to bless us as much as He wants to bless us, and He wants to bless us 
as hard as it can be to believe, even more than we want blessing and His blessing. If you sit here this morning as a Christian and you're back sudden, and you're more like Israel at the time of Micah than Micah, then this passage is a very simple recipe for how to free yourself from the mess externally and internally that sin has brought into your life. Sin is messy. It is always messy. It is always complicates. It always ruins and it spoils. And the path out is not a complicated path. It is the same path to just stop this morning and to say, look at this passage and say, going forward, God, by your grace, I recommit my life to you. In the power of your Holy Spirit, give the ability, no matter what is in my past, to now do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before you. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, again, this isn't the way to be saved. It's a description how some, of how someone who is already saved or a Christian, how we are to live our lives. A group of men came to Jesus in his public ministry, and they posed a question to him. And they said, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And they're, in their mind, they're religious, religious men, in their mind it was, okay, give us a list of all of the works that we need to do in order to buy our forgiveness from God, to buy our salvation. What do we need to do here? And Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him, that is Jesus, whom He, that is the Father, has sent. God has provided mankind with a Savior that pleases Him and qualifies us for heaven. He has provided us with a salvation in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that pleases Him. And one day, all that will matter is what is the salvation that pleases Him and that I be found in that salvation. And that's where it's found. And God desires to give to you as a gift today the forgiveness of your sins, a fresh start to begin a personal relationship with God, which is the entire meaning and purpose of life. And it's found by putting my trust in His Savior and in His salvation, the Holy Spirit coming into my life and being a born again to give me the capacity now for that relationship. And if you have never done that before, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and close in prayer. Father, thank you for making things so simple and how we need simplicity when we face all of the complications and all of the messiness of this fallen world 
the messiness of the consequences of the sins of people around us and even our own sin for how to extricate ourselves from that mess. And as we close this time today, we pray as we have spent time in your word that as is needed, the thousands of times it will be needed in this coming year for each of us, that you will bring this passage to our remembrance and to run our decision-making through this simple, holy, powerful, three-point grid, Lord, and to make our lives a blessing to you, a blessing to our fellow man, and the blessing that we want our lives to be to ourselves and that we need it to be. So we learn, we read, we memorize, and to that, Lord, we ask that you would add the supernatural of your Holy Spirit to bring it to our remembrance, not only in the coming year, but in the remainder of our pilgrimage here. And we pray for this miracle and work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.